You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Well, it's that time of the year again. We come to that dreaded season where the pastor takes three weeks to talk about money. You might have guessed it from the name of the series. Anytime preachers start talking about generosity, uh, they're talking about all of our generosity, right? Uh, and we're a little hesitant. We get a little worried. We've got our skepticism, and some of it's rightly founded, isn't it? Our dread comes because some people do it badly. We've heard kind of the stereotypical prosperity gospel. If you give, God will bless you. And we get that there's something fishy about that. And so we're a little hesitant to take that kind of thing seriously. Uh, we've seen the folks on TV <laughs> flash the phone number across the bottom and you can call or go to the website and make a gift. And, and if you do, you're sure to get that new car you've been waiting for. <laughs> or get healed. Even. Or you can call in and get that little piece of cloth that the apostle sweated on. Or something. And they'll mail it to you. And we see that kind of stuff and we think, oh, I just I hate it when preachers start talking about money. Because it feels like manipulation sometimes. It feels like gimmicks and tricks. That's why when we spend our time talking about generosity, we want to come at things from a different angle, don't we? Because God's not into gimmicks. Jesus isn't trying to manipulate anyone. What he wants us to see is his character. What the Lord God in heaven wants us to think about, the starting place, when we think about generosity as a matter of our character, for the triune God, the starting point is his own character. And one of the chief places where God reveals to us that aspect of His character that we can describe as generosity is in the creation of the cosmos. These opening chapters of the Scripture where God just starts making stuff. And we know the text. We're familiar with the text. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All of it. All the stuff. And He creates Light and he creates the sun and stars and moon. He creates the earth and waters and he separates the waters and creates land and fills the land with animals and all these creepy crawly things and bugs and insects and beautiful birds in the sky. And he's just filling the place with his abundance over and over and over and over again. And when we look at that aspect of his character, and if we remember that following Jesus isn't just about fire insurance, you know what I mean when I say that? It's not just about, I'm going to pray this prayer and go down front so that I don't have to go to hell, because that's the way it gets framed sometimes. If it's more than that, if it's about an actual transformation of my care, of my being, when the Holy Spirit comes into my converted and redeemed and regenerate 
body, when the Holy Spirit shows up, what is He there to do? He's there to reproduce the character of God. Jesus says, follow me. I'm going to show you what discipleship. I'm going to show you how to begin embodying my character. Love God, love your neighbor. All of those commands of Jesus. It's not just a list of laws, because that's what he's in the mood for. It's about what it looks like for human beings to come to embody his character. So if salvation is more than fire insurance, if Christianity is more than kind of a get-out-of-hell-free card, if it's about embodying the character of the God revealed in Christ in the Spirit, and if that God's character is marked by generosity, then we need to be talking about what it means for us to reproduce and embody that aspect of His character. Not because we're trying to milk every last dime out of everybody, but because we're trying to be like Jesus. Because we're trying to embody the character of our Creator, our Redeemer, and our Sustainer. So when we come to the opening chapters of the Bible, we see a God who makes heavens and earth, the cosmos, with all of its grandeur and beauty and majesty. We see a God who lavishes generosity. His character is marked by generosity. The f he's giving things immediately. He makes a world and He gives it. He makes a garden and He gives it. He makes a person and He gives His image. He makes a person, He gives life. I mean, the thing that we discover in these opening chapters of Genesis, when we get to chapter 3 and everything goes south very quickly, we haven't read that yet, we'll get there in a little bit. The thing that we see over and over and over again in this part of the story and as the story continues all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the history of the people of God, all the way into the Gospels, all the way in to the letters of Paul, all the way through to the end of the story. This central reality that shows up in the opening chapters of Genesis just presses all the way through. And it's this. Friends, our greed doesn't stop God's generosity. Through and through, from Genesis to Revelation and Jesus all the way through, our greed does not stop God's generosity. It's an aspect of His character that's just as consistent as every other aspect of His character. Over and over and over again, He demonstrates His generosity. And if we want to be a missional people, if we want to be a holy people, then we need to, let, we need to invite Him. Say, God, I don't have it in myself. I need You to draw my eyes to this aspect of Your character. Draw my eyes to Your generosity. Make me whole. So let's take a minute and, and reflect on God's generosity amplified throughout the cosmos. We won't read all of Genesis 1, but there's this repetition, isn't there? God said, let there be light. God said, let there be waters. God said, let the earth put forth vegetation. God said, God said, God said. And then you get another repetition, don't you? And it was so. And it was good. 
It's almost like a song, isn't it? With a chorus repeating over and over and over again. God said, and it was good. And we get distracted when we come to this text. Uh, we get into fights and start arguing about science and things like that and how this story relates to what they discover in labs and test tubes and look at through microscopes. And when we get into that kind of divisive argument, we miss the point, don't we? And the point of the opening chapters of Genesis is that God is this stunningly benevolent and generous God. And He just wants... He doesn't need human beings. He doesn't need an earth or a Saturn. He doesn't need... The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has existed from all eternity, is entirely sufficient in and of Himself. He doesn't need me, and guess what? He does not need you. Surprise. He doesn't need Adam. He doesn't need the sun. Or the There's nothing in the creation that he needs. He is completely sufficient and satisfied in himself. He doesn't need us. And that's really good news because it means that in the act of creation, it's sheer love. He doesn't make us because he needs us. He makes us because he loves us. And he begins to demonstrate this stunning love for us, for his creatures, in a variety of ways. That monotony is broken when we get to the passage we read a few moments ago. God said, and there was. God said, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. And then you get to verse 26, and you get a different phrase. God said, let us make. And all of a sudden, the monotony is broken, the repetition changes, and if we're paying attention, it drops a point, drops a needle in our reading, in our minds, in our hearts as we read. Something different's going on with the thing that God's going to make next. Instead of just speaking and doing it, God stops to deliberate and reflect. Think about the last time you had a project. Like the more time you spend planning it, the more important it is, right? The more time you spend deliberating and reflecting on the steps, the process, the more important it is. Up until this point, God has just instantly, by, simply by speaking, He has made everything you see. But in verse 26, He stops. And for the first time in the story, he thinks about what he's up to. He consciously deliberates. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, cows, cattle, wild stock, animals, everything. Creeping things that creep. <laughs> you might wish that had been left off, but it's there. And so God makes them. He, he takes human beings, male and female, both together, side by side, and endows them. The first thing He does is He gives them something. Well, the first thing God does is gives. Expresses generosity. And what's the thing that He gives? He gives His very own image. And that image is all about creative authority. All right, notice how it works in the text. 
God said, let us make humankind and let them have dominion. Whenever you get parallels like that, let us make human beings, let them have, let us make, let them have, the next words at the end of the sentence, the phrase, that interprets one another. Let us make humankind in our, in our image, let them have dominion, authority. So that aspect of ruling, creative ruling, where God says, look, I've made a world and I want you to go out there and subdue it and care for it and make it lovely. The Creator creates creators who embody that aspect of His character. In His image, they represent Him in the world to rule over it with this loving stewardship. They are His trustees. He has entrusted to them the care of everything He's made. And then, if it's not clear, He continues. I've given you, verse 29, every plant, every tree, you shall have all of them for food. Look around, as far as your eyes can see, it's a gift. It's a gift. And when we get caught up on conflicting interpretations of this, we miss the beauty of the gift. That's what this passage is about. It's about a God who creates and gives. It's about a God who is just, whose generosity is massive, is cosmic. He loves beauty, and He loves to share that beauty. And the principal creatures with whom He desires to share it us, you and me, the people made in His image. He lavishes generosity. And if we miss the point in chapter 1, it shows up in chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, they kinda, they're kind of they complementary and they give you kind of different angles if you're watching a movie or a, 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 and you get the one camera angle and then one switches over and you get a different angle. That's kind of how Genesis 1 and 2 are together. Or maybe even better, chapter 1 is the, the zoomed out. Here's the big picture. God creates humankind. Boom! In His image. Right there. And everything else. Chapter 2, zoom in. Here's, a, here's, some, here's some particulars. You're going to see things up close. And that's what we get in chapter 2. Verse 7, God creates and forms a human being out of the dust of the ground, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, another gift. Life is gift. And the man became a living being. The Lord God, the next thing he does is plants a garden. Any gardeners? There's a few. I know there's a few because I get veggies sometimes. And I'm grateful for that. Your generosity is just is a joy to me. It's good. God's a gardener. He makes a person and then he plants a garden. And then he gives the garden to the person. Again, generosity. The Lord God, verse 8, planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. It's beautiful. 
It's delicious. And God doesn't just say, ah, you know what? Here are the leftovers. Here, here's what I've, you know, I've put my energy into some other things and I'm just going to, here's what i got left. It's not my best, but you can have it. That's not his, that's not his approach, is it? He says, look, it's beautiful and delicious and you can have it. It's all yours. Take it. Enjoy it. Eat it. Drink it. Plant it. Cultivate it. Grow it. Expand it. There's a world out there and I want you to turn it into one massive garden for me. It's yours. Enjoy. It's like God's throwing this cosmic party with the best food and the best drink. All of the... It's just, it's rich in abundance. And then we get down to the part about that tree, right? At the end, tree of life, that's cool, middle of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil apparently is in the middle of the garden too. And we think, couldn't you just put that on the edge of the garden or something? That would have been tremendously helpful if it weren't in the middle. But there it is. And we get that and we've read almost two, a chapter and a half about God's generosity and His abundance. We latch onto that one tree and we go, what's His deal with the tree? Why has he got to put that tree right there? That's a problem. And we begin to question his character. Right? That's, that's what always happens in this passage. Why would God do something like that? Why would he put that temptation right there in the middle? Surely he knows all the pain. Sure, I mean, of course he knows all the trouble it would cause. And he still did it. And when we do that, we're questioning his judgment, aren't we? And we're missing his generosity, which is amplified throughout this text. You can have every tree. God says, I'm going to hold one for myself. You can't have it. And it's right there in the middle. And there's a reason for that. It's a reminder that everything's a gift. And you don't have unilateral, inherent authority here that's what that tree's about friends it's a reminder to us that with all of the authority that god gives we don't have it inherently it's a gift and the giver who gives billions of trees has every every right to hold back one for himself that's off limits it belongs to me Imagine uh, someone gives you a great gift. Imagine they put you in charge of their entire estate. Here, take it, enjoy it, care for it, just go and enjoy. And they hold back this one thing that's important to them. Say, you know what, I'm going to give you everything I've got, care for it, make it bountiful, but there's this one thing I'm going to... It's mine. Would we call that person generous or stingy? Generous, right? Somebody gives you every bit of land, but holds, you know, a million acres, but holds back one. They're not being stingy, <laughs> they're abundant in generosity. Take it all except the one. And when God does it, we begin to blame Him. Take every tree except the one. 
That's the one we want, God. That's the one we want. The good news is our greed doesn't stop God's generosity. That's the story in chapter 3 of Genesis, isn't it? By this time, God's made a companion for the man. They are there in the garden together, participating jointly in the image of God and caring for and overseeing the world that God has made. And then this serpent comes along. We don't get a lot of information here about the origin of the serpent, but he's, he's an antagonist. <laughs> right? He's the bad guy in the story. And he says to the woman, these words, notice the first thing he says. Did God say? What's he doing? He's questioning the trustworthiness of the Creator. Now to this point in the story, you've got God who's just, he's not given them any reason to doubt his love, his care, and his trustworthiness. He's given them every, more than they could imagine. He's lavished bounty and beauty, and he's been stunningly generous to them. And the world is this place where everything has everything it needs. The cows never go hungry, the birds have everything they need to build their nests. There are streams, we are told, that bring water and there's just this lovely, spectacular, it's like God is this host and He just gives and gives food and drink, all these things. He hasn't given them a reason to doubt Him. He's only been generous. The serpent comes along. Did God really say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it. Now, if you read back earlier, God never said, Don't touch it. That came from somewhere. And it appears that since she wasn't there when God gave the initial command, it came from Adam, because he's the only one who's there in the story. Right? So here's, here's the way that the story kind of plays out. God makes Adam, plants a tree, says, Adam, don't eat the fruit on that tree. And then he makes Eve, and it's Adam's responsibility to transmit the commandments of God, and apparently he doesn't... You ever have this thing with your kid where you go, you know what? Don't play in the street, and in fact, don't even go outside the gate. Right? Because you're creating a buffer zone of safety with your kids or something like that. Right? You can imagine Adam. Don't eat the fruit from that tree. In fact, don't even touch it. God said... <laughs> But what's he doing? He's adding. God's word wasn't good enough. Adam had to fill it in a little bit. And so she goes along and tells the serpent what she thinks is God's command. And Adam apparently is right there. And he's not getting involved. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, you're not going to die. Because God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. And what is he saying? The serpent is putting this little seed in her mind that 
despite all of the apparent generosity, God is holding out on you somehow. You think he's generous, but he's really, he's got something that's good, and he doesn't want to share it. Take a look at it, Eve. You're not going to die, verse 5. God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So she sees that it's good for food. I mean, it's, it looks good. It's good for food. It's a delight to the eyes. And then what does she do? She takes it. Nothing happens. God never said don't touch it. Somebody did. She touches it. Everything seems okay. What's the next? Take the bite. Gives it to Adam who's there. And they begin to operate in a different, with a different frame of reference, don't they? Instead of God is generous and abundant and just overflowing in his, the way he shares and gives, he's given everything. They move from this mindset marked by generosity to a mindset marked by scarcity, don't they? There's only so much to go around, and we've got to get our hands on what we... We've got to get it now. They believe the lie that God is holding out, that He's holding something back, that there's some good gift that He doesn't want to share with them. And and, and it's really about His character, isn't it? The serpent calls the character of God into question. And they believe the lie. Even though God has overwhelmingly displayed his generosity. They begin to think, there's only so much wisdom to go around. Sure, all the other trees have fruit that's desirable and good for food and pleasing to the eyes. And, but I want that. Move from this attitude of just abundance to this attitude of resources are scarce and we've got to get our hands on what we need to take care of ourselves now. Even if it means disobeying the one who's given us life, garden, everything. And when they shift from that Abundance to scarcity mentality, they begin, it's, it's expressed in greed, isn't it? That's what's going on here. If God is giving and expressing generosity, when they begin to take, it's an, it, like if the story's about generosity, when they begin to take, all of a sudden, it's an expression of greed. We're going to get what we want, no matter what. Just let that sink in for a second. Just let the the arc of the story sink in for a minute. A God who creates things out of just out of joy. Doesn't need it, just loves it. I was I was this was struck me this weekend actually. Amy and I took the kids to Chattanooga for a couple of nights and we went to Ruby Falls, if you've ever been there. Um there's a spectacular waterfall, way like a thousand feet underground. You go down this elevator and you walk through this, these caves and tunnels and things like that. You wait a lot because there's a lot of people down there, and then there are other people coming back, and you got to kind of scoot to the side, and it's a, it's a thing. But all along the way, I was struck by just some of the most beautiful 
stones I've ever seen in my life. These geologic form. I have no idea what they're called. Quartz is about as good as I can do. <laughs> but they're just, there's these, these different forms of, of rocks, and some of them look like, they're called drape formations. They look like curtains kind of flowing around. You get the stalactites from the top and stalagmites, and they're just these beautiful columns, and they look like different things, and it's stunningly lovely. And I remember remarking to Vivian, I said, you know, Vivian, what amazes me about this is all of this was here for an incredibly long time before any human being ever laid eyes on it. God just put all this beautiful stuff in the middle of this mountain because he enjoys it. It's beautiful to him. And it's there and it's hidden. And nobody knows except it, the triune God. Until in the early 1900s, I think, some guy named Leo crawls through this shaft and all of a sudden discovers it. <laughs> but it's there. It's, it's just an, it's, it's like God's got this surprise and it's just waiting on us for all these years and this long period of time and nobody knows it's there, but it's there and God knows and he delights in it. And now we can share, we can delight in it too. And that's the, the picture we get of God as this God who he loves beauty and he loves abundance and he makes this stuff not because he needs it, but because he appreciates it. Not because he needs us, but because he loves us. Not because he needs some rocks hidden in the bottom of a mountain somewhere, but because he loves the beauty and the artistry and the glory of it. And he says, Matt, I want to share that with you. My children, I want to share that with you because I love you. That's the, that's the picture of God. Just, he doesn't just give what we need. He gives in abundance. More than you, you can never eat all the fruit on the billions of trees. But it's yours. Enjoy. That's the God we get in Genesis 1 and 2. Then we get to chapter 3 and the snake tells a slant story and we buy it, hook, line, and sinker. Because we're greedy. And we're operating out of this mindset of there are limited resources, and we've got to get our hands on what we need. And if you think about it, that's how the world, that's the worldview, isn't it? Scarcity. Governments run on a worldview marked by scarcity. There's only so many votes out there, we've got to get them. Only so many resources, we've got to have it. There's only so much power, we've got to hold on to it. It's every government in the world. Scarcity. Corporations. There's only so much market share, we've got to have. Us. There's only so much time. Only so much money. I've only got so much energy. <laughs> Are we going to look at our lives through this lens of scarcity, knowing that when we do that, all of a sudden we become greedy? I've got to hold back. I can't give my best. Because I don't know when I'm going to run out. Or, can we somehow allow the Scriptures 
to shape the way that we think about our God so that we see the world as a place of His abundance, His generosity, a place just filled with resources, abundant resources, filled with food that is pleasing to the eye, good for nourishment, filled with beauty in ways we've not even begun to imagine and probably haven't even discovered yet. I said earlier that the generosity story runs all the way through the Bible. Because that's the way the New Testament talks about Jesus. The God who lavishes abundance on Adam and Eve, even when they respond to his generosity with greed, attitude of scarcity, he promises them he's not giving up on them. That their greed isn't going to hinder or undo this aspect of his character. His character is consistent and he is going to be generous. God's going to be generous whether you like it or not. Genesis 3.15. This is sometimes called the first preaching of the gospel. He says to the snake, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. There's this conflict there. This is why we don't like snakes. But the church saw in that this anticipation that one day Eve is going to have a descendant and that descendant is going to take that snake and crush his head. Paul says that's an expression of God's generosity in Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. You know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ though he was rich he became poor for your sake Paul has this vision of Jesus enthroned in the heavens perfectly sufficient in everything that he is needing nothing abundant in he is rich everything is his there's nothing that exists that doesn't belong to him And what does he do? He condescends. He lowers himself. He goes from the place of highest stature to a barn in a little town outside near Bethlehem to a feeding trough. From the throne of heaven to a manger. was rich, but for your sakes became poor, so that you could become rich. That's the generous act of God in Christ. And that's the story that runs all the way from start to finish. God is generous. It is the principal aspect of his character on display and declared 
in the opening chapters of the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2. If you were to say, what is the most prominent aspect of God's character on display in those chapters, I would say, without hesitation, generosity. He gives and 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 gives over and over and over again. And he gives his best. And when we respond to his best, his generosity, with this scarcity mindset that results in greedy behavior, I'm going to take it. It's going to be mine. I'm going to hold on to it. I can't trust him. I'm gonna, I've, got to, I've got to take care of this myself. He still responds with generosity. And the name of his generosity is Jesus. And the portrait of his generosity is the cross. God desires to lavish his abundance on us. He desires it so much that he is willing to suffer infinite pain in Jesus for our sake. In Jesus, he is willing to accept horror of crucifixion and the weight of our guilt and the infinite consequences of our greed so that he can continue to reveal the gener- his perfect generosity. We need to see that. We need to experience it. And then, by the power of his grace, We need to have that reproduced in us. In every aspect of our lives. I got some stuff. How can can we use it? I got some time. How can we use it? It's not scarce. The Lord's been kind to give us time. We've got some resources. How can we use them? Where's the mission field? Where's the need? How can we do it? How can we, and not just give what's left, but give our best? Because that's what God does in Jesus. He gives Himself. He gives His best. If we can, if we can see Him like that, and if His Spirit can be at work in us in that way, then maybe, just maybe, we can move from that scarcity thing to that generosity. Imagine what Jesus can do with a church whose view of the world is marked by abundance, not scarcity. Imagine what he can do. And then ask yourself, is that who we want to be? You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.